the Mind for Life podcast. The Mind for Life podcast. Where your thinking can change your life. And now, here's your host, Jeff Bogazic. Hello and welcome everyone to this edition of the Mind for Life podcast. My name is Jeff Bogazic and I will be your host today. And on this program, we have the great, and I mean great honor of hosting Dr. Joe Clark, professor of neurology at the University of Cincinnati. Dr. Clark has lived in Oxford, Paris, and Moscow. He currently serves as a professor at Cincinnati University in the Department of Neurology, where part of his responsibilities have to do with concussion research. He has a Bachelor of Arts in Chemistry, a Master's of Science degree in Biophysics from Michigan State, and his PhD is from Michigan State in Physiology. He's also a certified athletic trainer, and he not only speaks English, but he is fluent in French and conversational in Russian. He has authored or co-authored over 100 scientific journal articles, as well as three scientific texts. In our interview today, Dr. Clark talks about concussions, concussion prevention, CTE, and most importantly, how you can train your brain to strengthen your neural networks and think better. Thanks for tuning in, and here's Dr. Clark. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it. Uh, Thank let you. me just say right up front, uh, the presentation last night was really great, a lot of information. And so for the audience, if you could just give a brief description of you know what you do, where you're working at, your credentials and everything like that, so everybody's got an idea and understanding of where we're coming from. Sure. Well, my name is Joseph Clark, Dr. Joseph Clark. I'm a professor of neurology at the University of Cincinnati. I'm also kind of the concussion management person for athletics. So if a University of Cincinnati athlete has a concussion or goes through our concussion baselines, I'm the one that manages those, reads those, help those, helps those people when they become patients uh, should they get a concussion. And I do research on concussion diagnostics, concussion management, rehabilitation, return to play, return to learn. Uh, my qualifications are that I'm a PhD professor in neurology. My PhD is in neurophysiology, uh, specifically cerebral vascular control of brain, brain blood flow. Um, so I'm all about the brain. I mean, right. everything is definitely focusing on the brain, brain function, normal function, dysfunction. Um, I teach uh, University of Cincinnati medical students and undergraduates. So if it's about the brain, I probably am interested at some point. That's wonderful. So you're the expert, man, right? Uh, hopefully, yes. <laughs> you're the guy we go to. And I'm interested in you sharing a little bit about what you're doing. So last night your presentation was on uh, preventing concussions and some of the research and the work that you're doing. Um, I want you to just share a little bit about what you're doing there. And last night you were talking about by the numbers. So if you could just share some of the results that you have seen uh, mm -hmm. at the University of Cincinnati from what you've been doing as far as preventative measures and also return to play and things like that, mm -hmm. uh, that would be helpful as, an, as a way to get started. Sure, yeah, again, by the numbers, if you're talking about college football for a second, which is where I'm doing mo uh, much of my work, 
college football teams average around 10 or 12 concussions per year as a team. Mm -hmm. Uh, The University of Cincinnati, since we've been doing our neurovisual prevention program, uh, the concussion rate is 2.14 concussions per year. Mm-hmm. So that's nearly an 80% drop. Right. We also saw a nearly 80% drop in women's soccer when women's soccer did the same thing. Those are two of the bigger concussion-causing sports in college. Um, continuing by the numbers, the average football player who has a concussion misses two to three weeks after a concussion. With our football players, the numbers are 6.5 days. So we do accelerated rehabilitation, we do prevention to prevent them from getting injured, and we do a lot of monitoring to make sure that they're able to not only go back to play 6.5 days, Mm -hmm. but back to learn. So we work on a two-prong system, more numbers, the two prongs being return to play and return to learn. These athletes are student athletes, and the return to learn is a critical component of what we're trying to do. Is there a difference in like, um, when you talk about being able to return to learn and being able to return to play as far as like, you know, some type of objective standard, is there a difference like that you need to be able to be at in order to, to be able to be functioning on both of those levels equally? Or, you know, are they, are they synonymous? Are they non-synonymous? How does that work? Well, it comes down to it's a clinical decision. Okay. And I'm part of a clinical team. Right. So I work with the athletic trainers. I work with the medical doctors. Um, obviously, I'm doing things with the people, the athletes, the patients themselves. We all, we all medical people also work with the academic people. So it's multi-pronged. Uh, and there is really no single metric. It comes down to what's considered or called clinical decision making. Right. So uh, I like diagnostic tests. I mm-hmm. like technology to help make decisions. The technology doesn't make the decision. Right. The decision's made by people about people. Right. And so no, it, it, there's a lot of art and nuance in working with the people, the patients, uh, once they're injured. So not really. Yeah. So. I, I don't want to say I'm skeptical of technology, but I understand the limitations of technology, mm-hmm. and I don't think we want to place uh, undue emphasis mm-hmm. and give undue authority to a machine. Right. Um, so the human element is important, and the fact that you say there's an art to it, and that comes from experience, mm-hmm. right? And you've been working in that a long time, and the fact that you've got multiple voices that are contributing to making whatever the decision is regarding a student and having prior knowledge mm-hmm. of that student's abilities and where they've come from prior to the concussion or prior to the concussive event, I mm-hmm. think is just really, really great. Yeah, thank you. And something to add to that is in um, college and professional sports, there have been stories and concerns that the medical practitioners are being swayed by the coaches and, and the, even the players themselves. Right. And yeah, humans act human. Uh, So what we have at the University of Cincinnati, and everyone needs to make a decision of what they're going to do. You kind of roll the dice and make a choice. What we've decided to do at the University of Cincinnati is there are three people involved in a concussion decision. Mm -hmm. There's the athletic trainer who works for sports medicine, works for the athlete, works for... um, Uh, athletics themselves. There's the team physician who is somewhat independent because 
the team physicians don't work full time for the team, but they do work for the team. Right. And then there's myself. I don't work for the team. I'm considered independent. Okay. So the coach can't fire me, and no disrespect to any of them. This is how we try and right. keep things clean, if you will. The coach can't fire me. The athletic director can't fire me. When and when we have to make a decision, any one person can veto a player going back to play. So when you have multiple uh, people involved in the decision, if there should be some controversy from a coach or a parent or an athlete, um, the group will win. The group right. will kind of bind and, and we'll Come just together. say no. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's, it's great that there's a policy in place that allows for dissent and the, the dynamics of power, if you will, are somewhat taken care of by the policy. Mm -hmm. So the fact that you've got many people and you are involved in that as an independent person and are not having to be swayed by coaches or other, even other athletic directors mm -hmm. or something. So that, that's, I think that's really wise and there's a lot of wisdom that the university put in place in order to make that happen. Yes, sir. So I think so, too. Yeah, it's really good. So um, talk to uh, our audience, if you would. And just for people that are, you know, just learning about it or not aware of it, what actually happens to the brain in a concussion? Um, and the, the big thing right now is the CTE. Mm -hmm. And the, I don't know if you've read the article. or They just diagnosed uh, Aaron Hernandez, who was the... Patriots tight end that went to jail for murder. He yeah. was diagnosed, I guess they said he had really bad, I don't even know what the numbers were or whatever, really bad CTE from multiple concussions throughout his playing time that they say had contributed. I don't know what the research is on it. I'm sure you do. Mm -hmm. But if you could share a little bit about concussions, what happens to the brain in concussions, and then what is the relationship there with CTE, what CTE mm -hmm. is, and then we're going to talk about what you're doing mm -hmm. uh, as far as your research goes to help prevent that. Sure. So what happens to the brain during a concussion? A concussion is technically a mild traumatic brain injury. And there are three categories of brain injury for trauma. Mild traumatic brain injury, moderate traumatic brain injury, and severe traumatic brain injury. And um, I do work with all of those patient categories. There's no longer a grade one concussion, two concussion, three concussion. To a certain extent, concussion doesn't exist or it's a surrogate term for mild traumatic brain injury. Okay. But if you told me that you had a mild concussion, I hear a mild, mild traumatic brain injury right, right. and that's kind of nothing right. to me, right? Um, but what does happen to the brain is it's injured. It's absolutely injured. You can call it analogous to a bruise. Uh, there's what's called axonal shearing, where the gray matter and the white matter are fat and protein in the brain, kind of like a steak. Mm -hmm. And um, the two tissues, the white matter and the gray matter, can move differently okay. when uh, there is a concussive event, a hit to the head, and right. the brain's moving around. And because the two tissues will move differently, again, kind of like cutting a steak on your right. plate uh, that has a little bit of fat and gristle on it, the steak moves different than the fat and gristle, the brain regions move differently. Okay. White matter and gray matter move differently, and they do what's called shearing, and the injury is called axonal shearing. Okay. And really, it's just another type of injury. You can call it analogous to a bruise, but when the axons are damaged, 
they don't have to be severed, but they're damaged, then proteins will leak out. Some of those proteins may contribute to the so-called CTE, which is chronic traumatic encephalopathy, mm -hmm. CTE. And if that occurs severely enough or multiple times, then the tau proteins that can uh, leak from the axons, clump together and produce what are called tangles. And the tangles may be um, what we're seeing in the Aaron Hernandez right. uh, data. And that can be associated with, again, the diagnosis of chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Okay. So the, the short story is, when you get a concussion, it's a mild traumatic brain injury. When you have a mild traumatic brain injury, the brain is injured. Mm -hmm. And it's just kind of like if you, uh, if you bang your, your elbow on a door, the tissue is damaged. Mm -hmm. um, and so in, in a head trauma, your brain is moving around inside of your skull, and that tissue is moving differently and in the movement of that tissue in you know such a concussive event some of the maybe the you call them the axle axon a x o n mm -hmm. are are being sheared or being mm -hmm. like separated mm -hmm. which is that's the neural networks i'm assuming right yes. how you think and how your brain processes information that's just being disturbed mm -hmm. and so ultimately you just can't think the way, which is why when you say, how many fingers am I holding up? And somebody says Wednesday, you know, mm -hmm. you, that's what happens. You're just not able to think in the right way. So, and then the CTE is just that thing happening on a longer term or, or maybe more, more, uh, you know, more regularly. Multiple things coming together to lead to a long-term uh, detrimental result. Okay. And with regard to the axons, you're absolutely correct. The axons are their super highway. Okay. They conduct the information. And again, a lot like a car on the highway has people and that right. could be information. And the analogy, if you don't mind me um, using, is the gray matter talks to the white matter and the white matter is part of the super highway. If the gray matter comes up with an idea, mm -hmm. you hold up five fingers, I should say five, but the idea needs to take a detour because it can't take the direct route because the direct route is damaged. Well, it can pick up a baggage, if you will, on the way. Uh, again, you know, car get a flat tire or whatever, and the message gets changed and it comes out as Wednesday. Mm -hmm. So A, the person is injured, B, the message can be slowed down, C, the message can pick up, if you will, baggage and change the message. That is so interesting. I mean, it's amazing how that works. So maybe we'll get into this a little bit later about like the idea of consciousness, mm -hmm. right? How, how do we think of consciousness and the way the brain processes information is, is amazing to me and maybe you can give some insight on that. But before we do that, so talk about what you're doing, right? What you're doing training-wise, you know, you, you, the, the, some of the brain games, if you will, that you use uh, to help strengthen those axons Right? Is that the plural correct? Plural? Axons, that's the correct plural, yeah. To strengthen that or to strengthen the neural networks, how that helps to prevent concussions. Mm -hmm. uh, so maybe talk a little bit about the neurovisual training mm -hmm. and then we can get into what exactly happens through that that strengthens your brain, that prevents the concussions, and then also helps the return to play and return to learn. Right. So uh, we do at the University of Cincinnati neurovisual training and conditioning. We also do baselines that have components of that with, 
neurovisual training within the baseline. So we get a lot of brain information about our athletes. And then the neurovisual training and conditioning is a multifunctional training and conditioning that helps improve performance, because that's one of the ways we motivate the athletes. The better the performance, the safer the person is, because mm -hmm. if they can move faster, see faster, get out of the way faster, they're less likely to get injured. Then there's also that injury prevention component, performance enhancement and injury prevention. And the third part is what you were alluding to, and that is the wiring part. So we're training the brain with the neurovisual training to wire, and it's like building new, new superhighways is analogous to repairing damaged superhighways, and we're training the brain to wire better with those types of exercises. And that becomes a halo effect. The better the brain knows how to wire for neurovisual training, and then if the brain is injured, a, an athlete becomes a patient, then we use some similar neurovisual rehab, mm -hmm. they get better faster because the brain already has a program on how to do that wiring, on how to do that test. Mm -hmm. So they get better faster should they get injured because they've already learned how to get better, and we call it prehab. So neurovisual training becomes the rehab, but the neurovisual training on a non-injured athlete beforehand is effectively prehab, prehabilitation. So the brain, of course, is adaptable, yes. right? It is, the, the, the term is plastic, mm -hmm. right? Neuroplasticity. Um, if you, is, is it fair to use the analogy of a muscle and say, if you don't use it, you will lose it? Mm -hmm. In other words, and the more brain, quote unquote, brain conditioning that you do, the, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a similar sense, if you go and start to say, I want to do 20 push-ups today and I can only get to 10, I can't do it, my body doesn't respond, but if I start doing that over an extended period of time, I'm able to do 20 easily, but then I reach a plateau and I've got to kind of change up the, the regimen, and what you're talking about with the neurovisual training is very similar to that, correct? The, the brain is very much like a, a muscle, analogous to how a muscle performs. The brain is an excitable tissue, in other words, it has action potentials that the membranes must go through to do its job, and its job is to conduct information. The muscle has action potentials at the membranes to do its job, and that is to contract or shorten or move things. And so there's a lot of similarities between a muscle and a brain. Uh, the brain is much more plastic than the muscles. The muscles do not have very little plasticity. Mm -hmm. The brain has a lot of plasticity as long as we keep training it to do that. Like you said, if you don't use it, you lose it. And so neurovisual training, neurocognitive training, brain training, um, they all are similar, they all overlap, and one of the best things to do is a little bit of all of them. Right. I advise people to try to do things in 15-minute increments. So in other words, similar to muscle, if you wanted to do those 25 push-ups, if you worked out in a gym for eight hours doing all muscle groups, tomorrow you're not doing 25 push-ups. Right, right. <laughs> Whereas if you do you know, pec and chest workout over two weeks, 
an hour or so at a time, then you're going to be getting closer to those 25 push-ups. Right. You see what I mean? Yep. Same thing with the brain. You need a little bit of rest in between mm -hmm. and uh, to sort of let the training take, the wiring take, mm -hmm. and then you need to do it again and get it a little bit harder and a little bit challenging and diverse. So I often will recommend to athletes and to patients certain electronic games. You know, there are lots of great little games on uh, available as apps, but that's not the only thing. Because right. then I'm going to say, and you need to do pitch and catch, and you need to do dynamic things. A computer screen is two dimensions. You need to do three-dimensional right. things. And and it's the syncytium, if you will, the, the constellation of activities as opposed to just push-ups. Right. It's push-ups and pecs and pulls and tries and lats and right. obliques that comes together to be able to do a good push-up. And again, with the brain, to be able to have a nice healthy brain that's ready to prevent you from getting a concussion and ready to get you back better, faster, safer, should you get injured. Should you get injured. So does the brain, uh, is the strengthening of the brain similar to the strengthening of your mus muscle groups in the sense that uh, the, the, the right nutrition, the proteins need to be there in order for you to be able, in, in order for that, 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 organ, if you will, to develop and mm -hmm. to grow and to get stronger. And what are the things that people can take? Now, granted, you know, if you're just going to pound down protein powder and never go lift, you're, you're not going to put right. on muscle. So if you're just going to go take, quote unquote, you know, there's the pills, uh, the brain, brain booster pills and things like that, and you're not actually going to do the, the cognitive training, it's probably not going to be as beneficial. Mm -hmm. Is that fair to say? And, oh, it's, and, and what could people take? Right. It's absolutely fair to say. Uh, so you need the right metabolic environment uh, for the brain to improve. And if we keep using the superhighway construction, you know, you need the construction materials, right. not just the foreman saying this is what's going to happen. You need the materials. Um, I, I always recommend a healthy, well-balanced diet, and that includes fat, carbohydrate, protein. Carbohydrate, that's not energy bars with just sugar. That's complex starches, you know, breads, grains. Um, those are healthy carbohydrates because sometimes people get confused. Well, sugar is a carb. Right. Well, not the right one. Simple healthy carb. ones, Correct. yeah. So healthy fats, carbohydrates, proteins, and then what are called micronutrients. That's more a chemical perspective on a, a diet summary. Right. And uh, again, a healthy diet of fruits, vegetables, meats, protein, you know, the food triangle right. uh, pyramid, that's great. Um, and it, But it still needs to be balanced. It still needs to be healthy. It still needs to not have uh, uh, too much of the unhealthy components. Um, super low fat diets are not good for the brain. The brain has a lot of fat in it. Right. Um, and it's extremely fat dense, and it needs the healthy fats. So you know the omegas, um, the fish oils. Those are actually wonderful. Um, I see people, uh, you know, and they are they're going to have a healthy meal with salmon. They they take the skin off. The right. skin has great healthy fats in right. it for the brain. And some people don't like it. I understand it, but. Um, you need the absolute foundation. Mm -hmm. uh, there are several products that are out there that are fairly high quality, um, and a very well-balanced diet is essential as well. Uh, and I don't say things like 
avoid salt, I say things like use healthy salt. So there's sea salt or there's um, uh, some sort of salt pro, uh, substitutes that um, uh, don't have too much sodium. But if right. you're sweating, you're consuming, you're going through quite a bit of sodium. Right, so it's right, right. balanced and diverse. Okay. Um, I forgot what I was going to ask you. I had a question. And it was That's okay. So I was rambling. Oh, this was it. <laughs> no. So there's been some research about the effects of sugar mm -hmm. on the brain. Uh, I don't know if you study that or if you mm -hmm. feel qualified to talk a little bit about that. But what, what, if you could, what does sugar do? How detrimental is it? Is it detrimental? People have compared it to, I, I saw, I think it was a documentary about, uh, and in the documentary, the, the individual c took brain scans of your brain on cocaine, your brain on sugar, and it showed these similar reactionary things. I don't know if that's legitimate or not, but if you could maybe speak yeah, to that Yeah, the sugar bit. stimulates the dopaminergic pro uh, pathway as well as the... Um, the cocaine. Right. So the first thing I want to say about sugar is glucose, not high fructose corn syrup. Okay. Glucose. So separate those two. High fructose corn syrup is not a dietary anything. It's a flavoring. Okay. Sugar, sucrose, um, is a flavoring, but it's also a... Um, uh, a metabolic intermediate okay. that humans need. That's what the brain wants and needs. High fructose corn syrup needs to be converted in the liver to something the brain can use. So keep those two separate, right. okay? And I know I'm repeating myself, but it's actually critical. The brain likes glucose. The uh -huh. brain has more or less three major metabolic fuels. Number one, glucose, sugar. Right. Number two and three are what are called ketone bodies, and mm -hmm. there's more than one. There's acetoacetate, beta-hydroxybutyrate. The brain loves those three. It can survive on other things, but it wants those three. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, you're giving the brain its favorite food. It's, it's happy as can be. Right. Uh, but it can majorly be overdone. Okay. Because sugar can also be converted to fat. Right. It can be converted to amino acids. It can be converted to DNA, RNA. It's a great fuel and metabolic foundation, but you can also overdo it. Right. Now, what I like to tell people is give the body a chance to control the sugar with the complex carbohydrates. So I like starches. Uh -huh. Complex starches are, are polymers or, or multiple units of sugar in a clump, in a large single and multiple large single molecules that the body can utilize at its discretion. Right. Okay, uh, so um, sugar is great, wonderful substrate. Too much is a bad thing. Right. And you can also uh, get a lot of benefits, sugar-like benefit from the complex starches. Okay, are there foods that people can eat that give the, that are, if for lack of a better term, are the best brain food? Like you talk about the complex carbohydrates, I'm assuming like a sweet potato or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and you said number one, and I can't even remember the terms you use for number two and number three, but where would number two and number three, in what types of foods would those be found? Uh, I'm going to answer a different question okay. if you don't mind. <laughs> That's fine. So number two and three are ketone bodies, okay. acetoacetate, beta-hydroxybutyrate. I mean, forgive me, but my first degree is actually in chemistry, so okay. I'm very comfortable with That's these. That's fine, yeah. There is what's called a ketogenic diet, okay? And yep, you can yes. generate a ketogenic diet, and the brain loves the ketogenic diet. The ketogenic diet is actually one of the first ever seizure medications really? developed in the 1920s, mm -hmm. all right? 
it's wonderful for the brain and it'll give you a heart attack. Yeah. Okay, because it's high fat. Okay. So I am not against the ketogenic diet for short term for focused things. The ketone bodies in the human body are one of the most diverse chemicals in the human body. The concentration, and we're sort of going back to by the numbers, right. the concentrations possible in the human body for ketone bodies go from 50 micromolar, very low number, mm -hmm. to 50 millimolar, a very okay. high number. Right. That's a thousandfold range. Right. You know, there aren't many things in your body that can change a thousandfold normally, and you're still more or less okay. Right. Ketone bodies, you can. The ketogenic diet will take you from rough numbers, say you're at the low end of 50 micromolar, you might get up to a couple of hundred, high hundreds of micromolar. Okay, but okay. nowhere near. Nowhere near the top, right. no. One of the best physiological ways to get a high ketone body concentration in your body, in your bloodstream, I should say, cardio. Really? Fat-burning cardio. Because uh -huh. think about this from a chemical metabolic perspective. The ketone bodies are produced with a high-fat, structured high-fat right. diet. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're in fat-burning cardio, you're actually burning the cardio, the fat during the cardio to produce the ketone bodies. And when your body's producing it, it produces a lot more. Okay. So I like the ketogenic diet. I love ketogenic exercise for right. the brain. So low impact, high cardio. We at the University of Cincinnati will often recommend for concussion patients and TBI patients an hour on a treadmill okay. or an exercise bike, an hour and 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. We want them to get to the cardio. And people will be saying, I can go faster. I don't want you faster, I want yeah. you longer. Because right. I want a long duration of the high ketones that stay high and it, the, again, metabolically wonderful for the brain. Yeah, you don't hear that a lot. I mean, everyone will talk about cardio and they're talking about the physical effects and what it can do for your, you know, your physical well-being. Mm -hmm. But how about your mental well-being? Awesome. Right. Yeah. I yeah. mean, <laughs> you would think that that would be like, hey, you want to improve your brain, you want to improve your cognitive function, go for a walk, you know, mm -hmm. for an hour. Uh, you right. Know, it, one of the first things that we'll do, I shouldn't say first, one of the frequent things that we'll do with our concussion, traumatic brain injured people when we get them to the cardio stage is... Cardio is boring, but when you're doing it as part of rehab, picture you're on an exercise bike and you're going through, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes. That gets boring, and I understand right, right, that. Right. But if you're in a rehab facility, one of our training rooms, we'll have a trainer or a student in front of you with flashcards. Right. Do math. Right. Okay. Do word finding. Um, we, one of my favorite drills is um, word finding with fill in the blank. So picture, if you will, I have a flashcard. Um, or we can do it on the computer screen with um, iPads, and it flashes a four-digit word with one digit missing. Right. And you have to fill in the blank. So not only are you thinking and reading and doing something else, you have to fill in the blank. My favorite example, if you don't mind, is a four-letter word is S-H blank T. Right. You're going to tell me shot or shut, because no dirty words allowed. Right, right. And um, many of them by design have multiple words. So I want the person thinking how many words fits that, you know, right. three slash four right. letter character. And so you're doing that on an exercise bike. So we get your brain in an awesome metabolic environment. Can you tell I'm excited about this? I know, I do. And, <laughs> and we make it work and yeah. we make it think. And that's how we're going to get it better because we're rewiring it in a safe environment. Mm -hmm. So... What you're saying for maximum brain 
power or maximum brain food, get on the treadmill and watch Wheel of Fortune. Yeah. <laughs> okay. There you go. Yes. Right? Yes. It's, or you know Yahtzee or some of those mm-hmm. things where you have right. to kind of or not Yahtzee, but uh, there's one that you Jeopardy or, or yeah, or like uh-huh. that where you have to try to figure out sure. how many words, mm-hmm. how many different things. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is you know talk about what type of areas of the brain that that access because you talk about in the neurovisual training not just visual training, right? You want to you want to train your eyes, but accessing some of the higher executive functions, use the term higher cognitive resources of your brain, however you would say that, and what type of, so so talk about neurovisual training, what it is, and what are the things that people can do similar to what you just mentioned about like fill in the blanks and things like that. Sure, so if we go back to vision training, um, a lot of people who are parents who have had kids and say the, the, sometimes the child has a weak eye. And uh, often doctors, eye doctors and pediatricians will recommend eye exercises. Right. And there's things like pencil push-ups, saccadic eye movement, near far. Sometimes there are corrective glasses, but let's stay away from right. that. So those are eye muscle exercises, and those are great. And they're just, they're just working the actual muscular function of your eyes. Correct, right. but also the brain controlling that muscle function. Okay. And that's vision training. Right. Now, if you take, for example, um, saccadic eye movement. Saccadic eye movement means the eyes go left and right or up and down. Mm-hmm. If you make the eyes go left and right and say you're reading uh, letters off of a chart and you know your eyes go left and read A, go right, B, C, D, whatever, and you're practicing the eyes to go back and forth and have to read, and that's really important for reading. You know, it's a reading mechanics right. assessment. The neuro part of that vision training is if you embed into those charts words. Right. And so now if somebody is reading B, left, right, L, left, A, C, K, W, H, I, T, E, going back and forth, they're reading words and then they have to remember it. So now the brain has to kick in and say, now I'm remembering what I'm seeing left and right. So we use that for, say, um, post-traumatic brain injury for people who want to drive. Because if you don't remember what you just saw on the left when you're crossing the street, you could be in danger. And we do the same thing with our athletes because if they don't remember what they've seen when they scan a field, then they could forget or mess up a play. Mm -hmm. And so that's the neuro overlay, if you will, with the vision training to make it neurovisual training. Right. And there are several examples of that. And some of them are the flashcards, some of them are the embedded words. Uh, you can actually do flashed images and, and try um, uh, to make a person remember things mm-hmm. faster. Mm-hmm. So there are computer programs where I can flash an image at you at 0.25 seconds, a quarter of a second. Mm-hmm. And then I'm gonna ask you to repeat three facts on that image. Right. I can do this for sports. I can do this for people post-traumatic brain injury. If you're an athlete, you might only get a picture of what's going on on the field and you need to use that information and remember it. Mm-hmm. So that's the overlay. Neurovisual training is really vision training with the brain neuro overlay. Okay. And so it's incredibly important to do that for preventative measures for concussion, mm-hmm. but also 
uh, for healing, and you talk about it as prehab, but then also at the other side of it is rehab. Yes, if you've prehabbed well, you're going to rehab a lot, a lot quicker. Mm-hmm. Um, so, ta- you know, in athletics and in concussions, that's very important. Obviously, huge area in our in our society today with sports. But talk about it for you know the regular guy who's maybe not an athlete, but you know struggles with learning mm-hmm. or struggles in school. Uh, maybe a, a parent has a child who's had difficulty getting good grades or difficulty concentration wise. Can that help in that instance? Can that help with uh, with some of that? And how beneficial is that for things like learning and deeper concentrations and all of that? Well, yeah, because if the brain is better able to use the information that's coming into it, then you're going to remember more, you're going to process more. Right. Uh, so the learning aspect uh, has... Benef- has benefited from and does benefit from neurovisual training without question. Right. Uh, certainly the little kids who get the vision training, that's often so that they can do better at certain tasks at school, like reading. Now, not everyone learns visually, mm-hmm. so that you can be a, a visual learner, a tactile learner, mm-hmm. an auditory learner, um, a kinesthetic learner. Mm-hmm. There's different types. Vision is an important component for most of our academic youth, if you will, and Mm -hmm. non-youth. The vision training, the neurovisual training, will certainly help people. We can't take a person with a a, a poor cognitive skill set and suddenly make them an Einstein, but everyone has room for improvement. And if you train the brain, it will get better. If you train your body, it will improve. So how much a person is going to improve, impossible to, to say. Um, will a person improve? Almost invariably, there are going to be some benefits. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, so um, there is room for improvement for everybody mm-hmm. when it comes to our cognitive levels or our cognitive development or our cognitive skills, however you might want to say that. Um, talk about what our environment current environment, and I mean, when I say that, I mean like our technological environment, our cell phones, our computers. What is that environment doing to our brains? Is that damaging our cognitive abilities when you talk about like critical thinking skills and stuff like that? How damaging is that? And if that's the case, which I suspect that it is to a certain extent, what are things that we can do to get outside of whatever that damage might be. What can we do to kind of counteract, counterbalance the the environment that we just are forced to live into? Right, so um, a a very good friend of mine in Cincinnati had, um, has a daughter, and her daughter was, I think, 12 or 13 years old, and they were looking for a science project, okay? Mm -hmm. And this will answer your question, then we'll move on, but it's a great example. And um, she felt that a cell phone and iPads were uh, detrimental to uh, her daughter's health and her, her daughter's right. friend's health. And what we did, the mother and myself, we designed a little experiment for her to do for her science fair. Mm-hmm. And what she did, um, and she came up with some of it, and we tweaked it a little bit. And what she did is she came up with uh, a two groups that were crossover cl- design, 
and she had her friends at study hall mm -hmm. be divided up into two groups and then they crossed over. And so one group would stand um, near the window, look out the window and did a visual treasure hunt. Okay. Okay. And so she set things up that right. they had to find visually. They're scanning outside. Yeah. And, you know, teachers approved and all that. Right. And then the other group got um, their iPads and downloaded a the same uh, game app right. and for the same amount of time played the game app. That was um, the variable. Right. Um, the study variable, in other words, the what they tested is before and after they did that, they did two tests. Mm -hmm. One was determining how good their peripheral vision was, so mm -hmm. left and right, mm -hmm. just by moving a finger right. and using a little um, protractor as far as the angles. Right. And they got the angle of the visual okay. field. Yep. 180 is, is wonderful, 170 is normal, 160 is not great, right. 150 is bad, right. okay, is numbers. Again, the numbers game. Then they also got a ruler and they dropped it and how quickly a person reacted to catch the ruler, right. okay? Very, these are very simple tests. They did the test before and after the beginning of study hall for the two different groups. And remember, the two groups were the same, and then they crossed over gotcha. a couple of study yep. halls later. So they both everyone... did the same test, mm -hmm. but, and both correct. did either the iPad or the window. That's correct. Right. Right. It's just the order that in which they were right. achieved, right? And uh, it took literally just two study halls to do it, and then a little bit of help as far as the test before and after. And what she found was that the iPad users had slower reaction times and worse visual fields going from, um, I don't remember exactly, but like 178 to 162 degrees, right. okay? Worse peripheral visual fields because their eyes tended to turn in. Just turn in. And then on the um, reaction test, the um, treasure hunt group had faster reaction right. times. Now you'd think that the people using their fingers on the iPad right. would have faster reaction Not times, so. but they were only fast on one task okay, yeah. when you had them do another task, because remember their eyes and yeah. brain had to work quickly to right. scan. Um, they were also slower on the reaction time mm -hmm. task. It took 20 minutes to divide the two groups. Mm -hmm. 20 minutes on the iPad gave you, them, worse peripheral vision. So, um, I do not like too much media. We use it. It's necessary. We're not taking it away. But it needs to be mediated and managed. One of the things I recommend to my athletes is don't use media for two hours before a game, mm -hmm. partially because of those results. By the way, that little girl only came in second at the science what? fair. I know. It's terrible. We need to talk about <laughs> teacher, right? Come on. Mom was still happy, of course, but, you know, yeah. I think she should have gotten a first. Um, so obviously, you know, visually there is impact. The brain, however, is plastic. So mm -hmm. I don't know like how long term those effects are, but they can be overcome yes. right? by, by doing certain exercises and training. Yes, absolutely. So again, we can't get rid of the media. We just need right. to manage it and use it cogently. Um, if you want to be an athlete on an athletic competition, on a field, on a court. Um, the media is going to be your detriment, especially if you're on it too much or right. too much too close to when you're performing right. because you need your eyes scanning. Right. Again, the visual treasure hunt is an awesome idea. So 
too much of a good thing is a bad thing. Right. You know, sugar is the same thing. Media is right. the same thing. And I, and I really want to go back to, I do recommend to many of my patients to use their media for certain things, but not the only thing. Right. Is there any type of uh, research out there and, and that talks about attention spans, uh, the mediated environment, what it's doing to attention spans, and can neurovisual training expand that? I mean, one of the things that educators have to deal with is, okay, I have a classroom that has been you know, predisposed to short attention spans based on media, based on all of the quick, you know, uh, quick video cuts or things like that. And, and now I have to have them read a book. Mm -hmm. So that's a big challenge for educators, how to keep people's attention focused in the classroom. Um, can, is that the case in your experience and can the neurovisual training or some type of cognitive training help to alleviate that or, or you know, increase the, the, the capacity when it comes to attention? Yeah, we use the term study endurance. Okay. And uh, there are certainly certain vision training, neurovisual training, um, methods that will improve study endurance. If you're a college student, you may need to study six hours solid, you know, right. a famous all-nighter. Right. Um, if you spend too much time on media, then you need to work on a book or a book report, or like you said, read, um, you know, finish the novel the day before the test. Right. right. Um, your study endurance is gonna go down. You're not gonna be able to do that because you're gonna lose your place, you're gonna get distracted, you're gonna have poor ocular motor performance and you're not gonna have the endurance. It is endurance. Mm -hmm. So we need to train the endurance to make the people better at enduring, if you will, a long-term study section. You know, whether it's three hours or six hours, the neurovisual training and conditioning is conditioning and we can improve the endurance. And that's not even addressing, remembering what you're seeing. Right. That's part of the neuro part of the neurovisual right. training. Yeah. So it's a resounding yes. There, we often have to say, check with your doctor, your eye health care professional, because it's not cookie cutter. Right. Because as a simple example, a person can come to me and say, um, I get a headache when I read. Now, in a simple example, they may get a headache when they read because their eyes are turned in and their eyes are working against each other. Right. Or they can also get a headache because their eyes are turned out right. and the eyes are working against each other. Right. Different treatments, right? right? So it can't be cookie cutter. Okay. So if there are problems versus I want to get better, uh, definitely see eye care professionals because they slash we can guide you in the healthy ones. Mm -hmm. I've uh, sadly seen some people who are supposedly vision training experts and they were giving the same exercise to everyone and there were going to be several people that's going to make them worse. Right, that's what you're saying. It, it's a small number, but it, you know, when you see a lot of people, yeah. uh, you've got seven or 800 people in this school, you can't do the same with all seven or 800. Right. Yeah, it's, it has to be individualized, mm -hmm. and you have to make the right diagnosis at the beginning. Absolutely, yep. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, what is a general exercise regimen for the brain that somebody could do at home that will start to improve, that will start to work against the bias, if you will, of the mediated environment and what it's doing as far as our focus? How can we combat that? Uh, do you have like a simple regimen of here's what you can do 10 minutes a day. Here's something that you can do right now. 
here's what you should eat, here's how you should train your brain cognitively with the visual aspect of it. Just give a little diagnosis or a little prescription, if you would, uh, as a doctor, right? <laughs> yeah, well, neither a diagnosis nor a prescription right. nor practicing medicine, but let me first get all of the parents mad at me, right. okay? So here's what I'm gonna say. Um, put away the iPads in the car and play I Spy with my little eye with your kids okay. so that they're scanning outside and looking outside to find that thing that's red or blue or right. green or floating or in the air or the license plate number. You know, wake up, there's windows outside right, the right, car, right? right? And, and I know that can be a hassle and it's easier to give them an iPad, but who plays that game anymore? Right. But many of us grew up with that. And so they're, you know, enjoying their environment. It's in effect a treasure hunt. Right. You can do a car trip treasure hunt, especially if you know where you're going. Right. That may not be the most common trip. Right. You know, who gets to the whatever fastest. Yeah, right. Uh, because you're engaging the outdoors. Do you remember those little bingos, those car bingos? Yes, the car bingos, yeah. absolutely. Find, yeah. this, find a license plate mm -hmm. here, find mm -hmm. a tree, find a squirrel, stuff yes. like that. Yes, yeah. Yeah. or so, a license plate that spells whatever now they spell everything. Right, 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 but, right. Yeah, yeah. No doubt. So absolutely. So you're scanning around. Certainly, um, I think those are those are great. Um, it doesn't have to be every trip. If you know you need the quiet, okay, the iPad's right, right. fine for intermediate term. So that that's certainly number one. Um, uh, the other is more physical activity with visual activity. So going outside for a walk and looking around and pointing things out, because it kind of makes me sad when I see people literally power walking and they're on their phone. Right. You know, I mean, look around. Look around. Um, again, maybe a little bit of a visual treasure hunt um, uh, while you're on your walk or your drive or whatever. Right. Um, but the again, it's a lot of it is putting down the phones. So, so from an exercise perspective, what I recommend to students for a specific reason, high school and college, is a very silly little drill called the thumb thing, mm -hmm. and. Um, the thumb thing is very easy to explain, and it can help wake somebody up. And it's it's better for um, the run up to the beginning of school, but it okay. still can be a maintenance phase. Right. And the thumb thing is, you look at something that's twenty feet away, and um, or more, twenty feet or more, and just make sure that you can see it. Then you bring your thumb up, and make sure you see two thumbs. That means both eyes are working. Okay, yeah. Okay. So you're and actually looking at the thing in the distance, but in your peripheral vision or like in your general whatever vision, mm -hmm. you're seeing two thumbs, but you're focusing on what's in the distance. Correct. Okay. And so you're training the brain to use both eyes, make right. sure you continue to use both eyes. Because I've seen people who are on media for a long time and they say, I have the Brillieri eye. Literally, the brain will turn off one eye. Okay. And so we don't like that. So we do the thumb thing, and what I tell people is, okay, look at that thing in the distance, put the thumb on either side equally, and keep it. And you know you have one thumb, but you see two. And then if you're looking at my eyes, I'm looking far away, and then say that's the teacher. Well, now I need to look at a notebook or my computer pad on my desk, look close, uh -huh. then far. And I say 70% of the time you look far, 30% of the time you look at the thumb and you go back and forth. Mm -hmm. And you want to do that for just one or two minutes at a time. Mm -hmm. And then you can um, train the brain and the eyes to go back to the teacher, back to the thumb, back mm -hmm. to the teacher, back to the thumb, back to the teacher. I say thumb. I meant like iPad or, book or, or, whatever, or, whatever. or whatever. Because that's what happens in a, in a in classroom. A classroom. Yeah. And you're warming the brain up for that. Right. Okay. The other one that I do is, uh, and I recommend, is called palming. Okay, and palming is, is wonderful. 
not with contacts. Contraindicated right. if a person's wearing contacts, take them out. And it's literally you take your palms and you gently, 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 gently push on your eyeballs. Uh -huh. And you do that for about 10 seconds. Okay. And this may sound silly, but it's relaxing the eye muscles. It's okay. like rebooting them. Because what you do is you push gently with your eyes closed, then you look left 10 seconds with your eyes closed, mm -hmm. right 10 seconds with your eyes closed, straight for 10 seconds, eyes closed, up for 10 seconds, eyes closed, down for 10 seconds, eyes still closed, straight ahead for 10 seconds, keep your eyes closed, remove your palms, then open your eyes and blink a whole bunch of times, mm -hmm. and your muscles are gonna feel much more relaxed okay. because you can't, I can massage your, you know, your thigh, your calves, whatever, but only you can massage your eye muscles. Right. And that's like a little massage for the eye muscles. Okay. And um, only one minute at a time, but you can do that up to 10 times a day. Mm -hmm. And it's very relaxing. You're making the muscles work, but you're making them work in a massaging-like environment. I yeah. Right. And again, no contacts. No contacts. And um, obviously you're gentle pressure. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, to me, very interesting to recognize that everything we do in a physiological manner, mm -hmm. uh, whether we are moving our arms or legs or even our eyes, we're accessing our brain. Mm -hmm. And when you do that in intentional ways, um, uh, unintentional ways can be very damaging and of course then habit forming, mm -hmm. right? You've you established a neural pathway, it gets stronger, it's difficult then to access that outside of being very intentional and being very conscious, it just happens automatically. And one of the big things that interests me is how our brains uh, are, control our bodies on autopilot for 99% mm -hmm. of whatever we do. You mm -hmm. know, all of that happens, we're not aware of it. When we start to form patterns and habits that can be detrimental to us, they become so ingrained you have to be very specific about changing those around. And so uh, physiological movement, if I'm hearing what you're saying, doing things physiologically can start the rewiring process mm -hmm. and help to do mm -hmm. that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's the dynamism. Right. And when you're on a phone or an iPad, your eyes are nowhere near as dynamic. Right. We want, our brains want the dynamism. Uh, and um, you can't get that with most media. Okay. Well, uh, hey, I've appreciated the time. No problem. It's having been incredibly fun. Incredibly engaging and, and interesting to me. If you would just share for the audience, like maybe if anybody's got questions or something like that, how they can kind of like contact you online if you've mm -hmm. got a website or something like that. If you could just share that, that would be great. Yeah, so I do have a website. Right. My website is um, josephfclark.com. So the three W's and then J O S E P H, F as in Frank, C L A R K.com. That's my website. Um, my, uh, and I'm okay with email, so people can email, and it's Clark, J-F-C-L-A-R-K-J, as in Joseph, F as in Frank, at gmail.com. Okay. Um, and uh, again, I'm all about the brain. What I, what I think I said last time, last night is my job is to save lives one brain cell at a time. Right. Do you have resources on the website that people can access and download? And no, like uh, not really. Okay. No, um, some of our publications are okay. available online, yeah. uh, but not really resources. It's more or less information on what we do. Okay. Well, great. Sorry. Nope, <laughs> not a problem. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, Good thank fun. You. Thank you, sir.
Thanks again for listening to our interview with Dr. Joe Clark. For more information on where you can contact him, you can check out our webpage, mindforlife.org slash 058. And if you're interested in discovering how you rank in the 52 essential skills for success in business and life, go to mindforlife.org, click on the Discover Yourself link on the show notes page for this episode. That's mindforlife.org slash 058. Thanks again so much for listening. And we'll talk to you next time.